Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. The 82-page instructional toolkit called A Pathway to Equitable Math states, We see white supremacy culture show up in mathematics in the mathematics classroom when the focus is on getting the right answer and students are required to show their work. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Why is math an essential part of teaching absolute truth? How does learning math also teach us to defend the truth of absolute truth? How does math confirm natural law? Joining us again today on the Wittenberg Hour is Mrs. Rebecca McCreary. On this episode, we will continue our conversation we began last episode regarding math and truth. One thing that we utilize at Wittenberg Academy uh, across our curriculum is something that we call truth statements. Mm -hmm. And this is a response to behavioral objectives, right? right? You know, it's, it's, the truth isn't based on what you do. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that that's something that is, is strongly communicated in the language of, of truth statements. And, you utilize truth statements in your quadrivium classes. You know these are the these are the truths that that your that your scholars will learn. Over the years, have you have you had any scholars ask you? You know why why truth statements? What are what are these truth statements? I mean, have you had any scholars balk at this idea that these are truths that you are teaching? I haven't had any scholars that have had any questions about it. I've had occasionally some parents, but actually more interestingly, uh, fellow teachers who get very confused by the idea of truth statements, because in, I'm going to say the majority of education programs, we are taught to use these behavioral objectives. And if you're not familiar with those, it would be something like, you know, at the end of this uh, multiplication lesson, students will be able to correctly multiply problems with 80% accuracy. That would be an example of a behavioral objective. That's the goal. We're trying to get students to behave in a certain way, in this case, correctly doing multiplication. The problem that we have discussed with that is it doesn't actually tell you anything about multiplication. It doesn't tell you anything about why multiplication is important or how it works or, or why students should be doing it. It's really just focused on the student. And whether or not education should be more focused on the student or the content, I guess, is is a bigger question. But we've definitely opted to go for the content. And the way I explain it to my students is that this is what you should understand and know when the lesson is done. In in, uh, standard deviation, that one is a killer for a lot of students uh, because I write the truth statement almost as an equation. And it just looks like a bunch of 
character salad, like like a two year old got a hold of the keyboard when they initially <laughs> look at it. All um, right. You're doing this and you're doing this and there's some Greek thrown in there and and who knows what that says. But then I think the students really do appreciate it because I tell them when you're done looking at the videos, when you're done looking at the readings, when you're done with your time on that subject, your truth statement should make sense. You should know what that says and you should be able to do those things. It is a guide for you and it also is is true regardless of Regardless of the student, uh, the material doesn't change. Standard deviation is standard deviation. And, and you find it the same way, whether you're, you know, um, 14 or 87 or, you know, any other strange demographic change that you want to make. The truth statement is the truth statement. And, and that is always how you find standard deviation. So it's almost like if you're running a race of education and learning, the behavioral objective is something like, well, you win the race when everyone is cheering for you. Whereas the truth (laughs) statement is you're going to run a mile and then you're done. So it's giving them this sense of this is what I need to know. And this is how I can figure it out. It's, It's giving them a goal to get to instead of maybe I did it. I don't, I don't know. Did I? It's, it's making things much more concrete so that students can can gauge their own knowledge as well. And it's not to say that we're not simultaneously cultivating the imagination. It's not right. just that we're throwing these facts at scholars mm-hmm. and saying, okay, memorize this thing and and then you're done. Right. Right. It's it's that it's that beginning with this foundation of truth and always driving at the truth and and being focused on that truth allows them to know if they're headed in the right direction yeah. right yeah. and in in the midst of that they can they can wonder and they can question and they can uh, but but they won't ever get lost because right. they're they know that there is a clear goal. Mm-hmm. You know, the goalposts aren't moving, right? right, right. You know, when, when, they're, when they're driving down the field, they, they know, and I'm mixing metaphors yeah, here, but when they're driving down the field, you know, they know where the end zone right. is. You know, it, the, we, we don't arbitrarily say, okay, well, you know, for you, uh, the 10 the yard line is actually the, mm-hmm. the end zone. And, and for you, you know, the 20 yard line is the, no, the, the end zone is the end zone. Right. It, it's, it's not, it's not arbitrary. Yeah. It's not based on your performance. Mm-hmm. It's based on something that's, that's outside of you. Yeah. And, and I think that that is perhaps, uh, something that that causes a rub for uh you, you know you're talking about fellow teachers outside mm-hmm. of Wittenberg Academy that that because they they are are so ingrained in this idea that things really revolve around the student mm-hmm. and how they feel about about things that it's hard to conceptualize the fact that when we give scholars a truth upon which to stand and an 
an objective truth that it actually is objective, right? right. You know, we talk about the these behavioral it, objectives. Yeah, math. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, absolutely. But these these objectives that that really aren't objective; they're mm-hmm. more subjective. You know, maybe we should maybe we should suggest that we we should start calling them behavioral uh, sub- subjectives <laughs> instead of behavioral objectives. Right. Um, but but the the fact that we have this this truth that that we're driving at that's not contingent upon us that can actually be something that's very comforting mm-hmm. for young people in this world where even in the best of times is 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 very uh off-putting sometimes yeah. as we are learning to understand who we are in the midst of this this world mm-hmm. if everything is reliant upon me there's a lot of room for failure there's right. and there's a lot of uncertainty because of that mm-hmm. in the midst of this why can studying math actually be a comfort for young people well i think um Mostly one of the things that you just said is that it's outside of the students. Um, You know, we we talk about this quite often when it comes to our faith and our salvation, that our faith or our our salvation is outside of us. It's not dependent on us. And boy, are we thankful for that because there are a million different ways every day that we could then lose that. But if it's outside of us, we know that it's certain and it's there and it will always be there. So if we approach math similarly as something that is outside of us because it's looking for um, these these verifiable patterns in nature or in other numbers or in, you know, human nature, the world around us, if there's something we can always check against Students know, well, maybe I don't have the right answer this time, but I can find out if it's the right answer and then I can try again. There is something that I can check against and my understanding is not entirely dependent on me, uh, my, my understanding of what knowledge is and what math is. I know that there's something bigger than me that has this answer. And that's even something that I find comforting as a teacher. If there's something that I don't, um, you know, fully know every single minute aspect of, I know that there are other sources and that it's not completely dependent on me. One um, big uh, push in education recently is this idea of constructivism, where Mm. students construct their own knowledge um, and it's it's even been said that uh, knowledge doesn't exist until the student grasps it, uh, which is just terrifying because if I think of all the knowledge I don't know, I'm really right. happy that other people know it and that it does exist outside of me because there are just every oh, hour there's something that I find out that I didn't know before. Um, and so, so this idea that there's something outside of us as, as humans, as students, as scholars is just so comforting because we don't have, we don't have to have that pressure on us. 
Um, also, something that is very beneficial about math is that it demands consistency. We talked a lot about the definitions um, and you really do have to apply them consistently or uh, the different algorithms, they have to be applied consistently. So we get this practice in consistency, in following through with an idea. And so if we see a problem and we need to, you know, multiply that negative, we can see that when we multiplied the first one by a negative, when we multiplied the first one, by, the second one by a negative, and then we added the third one to a negative, now we can find where our problem was. Right, right. We have these laws and we have these rules and they don't change. And, and that's something that's very uh, comforting also, because again, we know that, you know, Maybe not every concept is going to be um, obvious the first time you study a subject. I'm going to pick on history because it literally changes every single day, or at least there's more of it every single day. Right. So, so if you're someone like me who still paid attention in history class, but it definitely wasn't my favorite class, and I think I'm going to go back and learn history now, well, now there's, you know, this many more years of history that I have to learn. Um, and while there's certainly more math that's being discovered, I know that if I don't quite understand, say, figuring out the equation for a hyperbola, it hasn't changed. <laughs> it, it's still going to be the same equation. And if I just want to look at it again, I can I can find that source and everything is going to be the same. Whereas, uh, you know, again, with history, it's, it's also kind of dependent on who was around and who had access. And, you know, the, the statement is history is written by the victors. So was her name really uh, Boadicea or was it Boudicca? It, it depends on what source you get. And there's there's this gray kind of area. Mathematics isn't gray. And, and I think that's something that, that a lot of students do find this comfort in because they, they do know that once they get through the problem, if, they've, if they are aware of the laws and they've applied them consistently, they know that there's an answer somewhere out there and they can, even if they didn't get it right this time, they can come back to it. That's something that I think a lot of students uh, appreciate as opposed to the more subjective world of literature or history essays where there's all sorts of different perspectives on things. Doesn't matter how you look at a parabola, it's still a parabola and it's still going to have, you know, the same process to find the solution. So, so I think that is definitely something that students can find comfort in. And also, again, that it is something that is outside of themselves to the point that we're trying to interpret nature, which definitely is outside of ourself. And we can always go back to the primary source of God and, and see how he has just given us this wonderful, amazing gift to even catch a glimpse of his own thinking, even as faulty as our interpretations would be. Yeah, I sometimes wonder... You know, if if there's going to be, and I'm obviously speaking tongue in cheek here, but I but I sometimes wonder if there's going to be this little seminar in heaven. You know, when when everyone, uh, when it when it dawns on them, 
you know, the answers to all of these questions that could never be answered because we could not grasp the infinite, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that will go, Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, You know, like that will be at that, at that point, or it might just be that we don't care anymore. You know, (laughs) we're we're standing before, uh, you know, the lamb who is on the throne and, and, and we won't even care because it, it, it it won't matter. Right. Because, because part of it is we, we, we search and we try to understand these things and we study these things because we, we want to understand, you know, I mean, that's been the search and the, mm-hmm. the asking all through history is that right. we want to understand God and, and his creation. We, we can't understand you know, we, we don't have, we can't ponder the infinite in our finite minds. And so it's, uh, but it's still a joy to do that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's not, sometimes it's challenging, you know, sometimes yeah. it's, <laughs> sometimes it's frustrating. I mean, you know, even Wittenberg Academy scholars, as phenomenal as they are, aren't going to on every single day go, oh, I just, I just had such a lovely time you know, right. in my studies today, you yeah, know, yeah. but, but the fact that, that we are giving them the objective to which they strive and for mm-hmm. which they they strive even on the challenging days and sometimes it might be looking back at them they can go okay i i get it you know right. and and this is why you know in all things but especially in math um that we we do demand that they understand before they move along because right. because we want them to experience that reception of truth or that mm-hmm. it, it, you know that we we don't want these things to be arbitrary things that they memorize that they just get through we want it to be part of their greater understanding of of who God is and the world that he's given us Right, definitely. Mrs. Rebecca McCreary teaches Quadrivium A through 5 for Wittenberg Academy. Rebecca, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. As always, it was a wonderful talk. We talked about all sorts of things. Um, Probably have to come back to a few of those ideas at a later date. Most definitely. worth repeating today is technology. Webster's 1828 dictionary says technology is a noun from the Greek for art and word or discourse. So it's a word or discourse on art. Explained a little bit further, definition number one says a description of arts or a treatise on the arts. Definition number two an explanation of the terms of the arts. 
Now, this seems a rather strange definition to our ears. If anything, we might say technology is to the detriment of the arts. Well, let us take a look then, perhaps, at what Webster's 1828 Dictionary has to say about art to shed some light on why he defined technology as he did. Art, according to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, is a system of rules serving to facilitate the performance of certain actions, opposed to science or to speculative principles as the art of building or engraving. Arts are divided into useful or mechanic and liberal or polite. The mechanic arts are those in which the hands and body are more concerned than the mind, as in making clothes and utensils. These art are called trades. The liberal or polite arts are those in which the mind or imagination is chiefly concerned, as poetry, music, and painting. Now, before we go too far, let us investigate how this word technology has changed in definition over time. We already heard 1828's definition. Let's fast forward to 1964. Here, Webster's New World Dictionary says the science or study of the practical or industrial arts. Fast forward again, this time to 2016, the new Oxford American Dictionary says the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes, especially in industry. Do you see the progression? Technology went from a description of arts, whether those arts be useful or mechanic, meaning those in which the body or mind are more concerned, like making clothes or utensils, or liberal or polite, meaning those in which the mind or imagination is more concerned, like poetry, music, and painting, to the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes. There was no lack of practical purposes in the original definition. And we can certainly see that there is a human element to technology as the arts are performed by man, even if the purpose for particular arts may differ. Whereas we generally think of technology as tools, in reality, technology is a description of the rules that facilitate the performance of certain actions. So look around you. Where do you see technology? Context matters. Our book worth reading for this episode is Merchants of Despair. In Merchants of Despair, Robert Zubrin gives us the no-holds-barred truth regarding environmentalism and its radical anti-human roots. Written in 2011, this book should be brought back to the top of your book stack to be read and considered in 2021. From the book jacket... There was a time when humanity looked in the mirror and saw something precious, something worth protecting and fighting for, indeed worth liberating. But now we are beset on all sides by propaganda promoting a radically different viewpoint. According to this idea, human beings are a cancer upon the earth, 
a species whose aspirations and appetites are endangering the natural order. This is the core of anti-humanism. Merchants of Despair traces the pedigree of this ideology and exposes its deadly consequences in startling and horrifying detail. The book names the chief prophets and promoters of anti-humanism over the last two centuries, from Thomas Malthus through Paul Ehrlich and Al Gore. It exposes the worst crimes perpetrated by the anti-humanist movement, including eugenics campaigns in the United States and genocidal anti-development and population control programs around the world. Combining riveting tales from history with powerful policy arguments, Merchants of Despair provides scientific refutations to anti-humanism's major pseudoscientific claims, including its modern tirades against nuclear power, pesticides, population growth, biotech foods, resource depletion, industrial development, and most recently, fear-mongering about global warming. Merchants of Despair exposes this dangerous agenda and makes the de definitive scientific and moral case against it. Now, it's interesting to note that Robert Zubrin is not a Christian, yet the truths that he uncovers, the way that science and following the science and the science says this or that or any other thing, and therefore we are just supposed to believe it without question, he exposes all of these things. And it's interesting to think about this in the current context in which those same lies are perpetuated and at the same time, those lies are as they were throughout history in the name of science, we aren't supposed to question what the science says. So I would commend to you Merchants of Despair. A few years ago, I actually had the opportunity to hear Robert Zubrin speak. The way he is able to draw from the scope of history and because he is a scientist and researcher himself, is able to call out the scientists or pseudoscientists and pseudo-researchers and call them to the mat and demand the truth and expose their lies is a fascinating thing. This book, Merchants of Despair, will open your eyes to the fact that the current context of follow the science and the science is settled and the Green New Deal and all of these sorts of things, these things, these ideas are not new. They're repackaged, they're reconsidered, but they're not new. But at the core of them, just as has been at the core of all of these ideas through the scope of history, they're anti-human. And if anything, now more than ever, as has always been the case through history, 
we need to be standing on the truth of God's word and what he says, man is made in the image of God. Man was given dominion over the earth. And in that, we keep things in proper perspective and proper order. When it comes down to it, the real thing at issue here is fear, right? And you think about, as you read through the history of this anti-humanist environmentalist agenda, that the impetus behind all of these things is fear. And you think about our current context and the impetus behind all of these decisions that are being made is fear. And fear is being used as a tool, as a mechanism to control people, to make decisions, to make people look at one another in their own families, in their own communities, in their own nations, and to look at one another with disdain, with distrust, with an anti-human view. Think about it. So, Merchants of Despair by Robert Zubrin. Pick it up. Take a look. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.